Leonard Peikoff Essays with James Valiant. And once again, Amy Nacer and I have the honor of co-hosting this episode. In fact, this is going to be special. We had to be here for this one because this week we're going to talk about the analytic synthetic dichotomy. Now, before that scares you off, I have to tell the story about why that was chosen this week. When James said, yeah, I want you guys to to come co-host the episode with me. I said, oh, that's great. What what are we going to do? He said, well, you, you pick whatever you want. Well, if you look at my copy of the Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, the edition that was released just before conceptual conferences in 1990, Ooh. right in here we have Leonard Peikoff and Harry Binswanger's signatures. <laughs> Why would that be? This is an Ayn Rand book. Well, this is the expanded second edition. Harry Binswanger edited and added in the, the epistemology workshops that were conducted with Ayn Rand as she was working out these ideas. And it was really her just teaching these people. It's not like she was learning from them, but, but a great deal of clarity. In fact, if you search, you can find which professors were which. Anyway, the reason Leonard Peikoff's signature is in here is because after all of the chapters originally published in The Objectivist, uh, the newsletter, and then the magazine, is an essay by Leonard Peikoff, The Analytic Synthetic Dichotomy. And I told Leonard Peikoff in person in 1990, you know, when I read The Fountainhead, I thought this philosophy is great. But when I read Alice Shrugged, I thought this philosophy is true. But when this became my philosophy, when I realized, well, this isn't just true, this is, this is the instruction manual for a successful flourishing life. It was when I read Leonard Peikoff's essay, The Analytic Synthetic Dichotomy. It's why that signature is in there. And I had to tell him that. Well, why would that be? Well, because as a somewhat intelligent and a little too philosophical kind of guy, I was still hung up on a few things. And the biggest hang up, the biggest domino left to fall, the biggest roadblock still in place was this issue of the analytic synthetic dichotomy and the connection of not just words to reality, which the introduction to objectivist epistemology does such a great job of, of, of fixing, of tying your concepts to reality, but this idea of two different kinds of concepts. And what on earth could be the answer to that? We've got these, these floating ideas, these logical ideas, things I know that logically are true. I could have a conversation with somebody, have an argument, and absolutely prove that they're true, except I couldn't really tie them to reality. And then I have all these things I know about reality. You know, think of ivory tower versus street smarts. How do you tie all that together? Did there, was there ever really a split in the first place? Leonard Peikoff answers that brilliantly in this essay. So James Valiant, Leonard starts off with an explanation of, of what the analytic synthetic dichotomy is. Now, I know you, you studied, I took a few classes, but you studied philosophy in college. Did you run into the analytic synthetic dichotomy? This issue in college courses, was it acknowledged? <laughs> I have to laugh because it permeated every aspect of nearly every course that I took in philosophy. I studied metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, the history of philosophy, logic. I got, I got a degree in philosophy from NYU, magna cum laude, thank you very much. My very first class, my very first day as a philosophy undergraduate, uh, my very first philosophy, philosophy professor, who was a Greek, no less, and a stated, uh, by his own statement, an Aristotelian. Day one, 
The very first thing he does, he walks through the door of the class without saying a word. He walks up to the blackboard and draws a line right down the middle of the blackboard, a big line down the middle of that. This is lesson one for philosophy undergraduates, first introduction to philosophy. And he lists on one side, a priori, necessary, analytic, and on the other side, he has a posteriori, <laughs> contingent, synthetic. And then he proceeds to explain the meaning of each of those concepts and how they are absolutely vital, fundamental to, the, to our understanding of philosophy and how this is the upshot of Western philosophy and basically treated thereafter as an axiom by all of my philosophy professors who really couldn't conceive of an alternative. When I would provide answers such as I got from Dr. Peikoff here or Ayn Rand and her, uh, her wider treatment of concepts, they really had absolutely no response. I would say, why should a definition just mean it's, uh, why should a concept just mean its definition? Doesn't a concept actually mean its actual reference? You know, table isn't just these words, you know, man-made flat surface, whatever. Uh, but it, it is actually each and every table that I've ever run across and all the tables that yet to be that I've never seen. So uh, what is the meaning of a concept uh, and logical versus uh, contingent truth? So, you know, you know I say to, I, I point out some of the things Peikoff points out in this essay, like I see. So a married bachelor is a contradiction it's a logically necessary truth. It would, uh, it, that we know from logical necessity. Now, and this is Peikoff's really amusing example. However, the fact, um, say that a bachelor couldn't be married is a self-contradiction. On the other hand, a bachelor who could get to the moon by flapping his arms really fast, that doesn't, that's not a logical truth. That's not logically necessary. That's just a contingent happens to be, uh, you know, factual matter. So when I would point out the absurdity of things like that and how it could be obviated by a different understanding of essence and definition, they absolutely had no answer. These essays, Ayn Rand's monograph on uh, concept formation is the most important work in epistemology done since Aristotle, in my view, and I'm not exaggerating, there's not an ounce of hyperbole in that assertion. And what Leonard Peikoff does in this essay, again, published back in the 1960s, shortly after Ayn Rand had published her uh, piece on concept formation, is the cashing in, is the kaching cashing in on Ayn Rand's radical new understanding of, uh, and this is could be history shaping this essay. I urge people to read Ayn Rand's entire monograph on concept formation, as well as this essay. It is devastating to the whole of philosophy, as far as I'm concerned, as it's currently practiced. And, a f and finally, putting epistemology on a sound basis. Yeah, and so the way it normally comes up is, <laughs> well, you've got two kinds of facts, right? I was just referring kind of to it. Um, ice is a solid versus ice floats on water. Well, by definition, ice is a solid. It's the solid form of water. On the other hand, the fact that ice floats in water, you see, just happens to be factually case. I could imagine, I could imagine a world in which ice sank, in, at least in my imagination. Now, if I knew anything about the difference between ice and water and what that what that solidification does, then I would know that it would have to float, right? But that's just factually true. Or 
take uh, man is the rational animal. Man has two legs or two eyes. Well, the first is true by definition. And the distinction philosophers make is this. Well, we have decided what the definition is. The definite nominalists, at least, we decide what the definition is. It's purely a human convention and therefore has nothing to do with reality. So if it's true and necessarily true, then of course it tells us really nothing about reality. It only tells us about our own conventional approach to language. On the other hand, you've got this contingent fact, this 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 synthetic fact, and let's explain that language a little bit. Mm -hmm. An yeah. analytic fact, like man being a rational animal, humans being a rational animal, I don't, all I need is analysis, you see, of the definition to get the truth of that that it's a contradiction to say that man is not a rational animal. On the other hand, if I say man is the creature with two legs or two eyes, then uh, I've got to synth what I'm taking is this definition and adding something to it, synthesizing it with a contingent fact, if I can use the other language. Um, and that's how they really justify it. <laughs> and, come, and in histor history, these nominalists weren't the ones who invented it. It goes all the way back to Plato, who had a very different view of essence than the nominalists did. He thought it was a matter of metaphysics and this world of forms. But in his mind, the idea that humans isolate the essence of a universal means that essence is what's real about it. Everything else about it is just a material aspect, a material corruption of this, in this world, material world we find ourselves. In his mind, these uh, essences, these forms, are what really exist in this world of forms out there. And of course, religious people pick that up, Christians and Jewish philosophers pick that up dramatically. Oh yes, you see, people like Leibniz could say, for example, that they're just, this happens to be the case about this world. You know, there are many possible worlds God could have created. God just happened to create this sort of world. And when he dealt with the problem of evil, he very famously said, this is the best of all possible worlds. God, this is the best God could have managed. So if we understood it from God's perspective, of course, it would be different. But that just happens to contingently be the best world that's possible out there. But there are all kinds of other possible worlds that we can imagine. And so these imaginary arbitrary possibilities are given a foothold, given a, re given a pl place uh, in thought, um, and definitions are j the pure meaning, in effect, of the concept. Now, if you approach it like that, whether you're a Platonist or a nominalist, your concepts are only references to other words. They're not references to things in reality. And of course, Ayn Rand's essay is all about that. How do they connect to reality? And as I say here, Leonard Peikoff is sort of cashing in on that, showing how this gross misunderstanding, this gross, mis this dividing of deduction, the severing of deduction from induction, this severing of definition from the actual referent of, of, of the concept is really a, a divorce, a severing, which destroys human cognition which destroys human cognition. Our deductions are, in effect, arbitrary, only the result of tautological conventions or some platonic essence or innate knowledge that we don't have access to directly. Or, you know, you know uh, the meaning of something could change because the possibilities of the world are infinite, in effect. Metaphysically, even. Not yes. everything possible. Metaphysically, an entity is every characteristic that it is. So if our concept is going to get it, it's got to capture all of that. Yes. 
it's an extraordinary common denominator because we think of Platonism as either being a throwback to ancient times or at least taking us back to Kant. And the moderns seem to have dropped so much of that, and yet they arrive in exactly the same place. The Platonists say that the definition is intuited from what's really out there that we can never know. The Kantians also would say we can't really know that world, but we intuit it, we philosopher kings. And the nominalists, the, the moderns come along and say, oh, that's all <laughs> mystical and supernatural. No, we get it We get it from general usage, ultimately from society. If enough people believe it, then that must be the definition. But as you say, as Leonard Peikoff says, in either case, that definition you know, water is uh, ice is frozen water. Man is a rational animal. That definition, that's all that matters in figuring out logically what's true. And then the other half of the equation is we look out in the world and see the way things happen to be. And that idea that, well, it happens to be, but as you say in, in Leibniz terms, it could have been something else. Everything could have been some other way. It just happens to be. There's, there's no, there's nothing you can rely on there. And if this sounds a little bit academic to people listening to it, consider how this plays out in your life in the modern world when you set up that clash between what is necessarily true because of our logic and what is contingently true based on what we see out there, but it might be different. You know, we, we call that Disney metaphysics. If you can imagine it or wish hard enough, it could be true. And how many people take that into adulthood? Surely no serious people do, but how else do you explain pragmatism? How else do you explain modern government? How else do you explain modern monetary theory? MMT, Jonathan Honig is in the super chat. Thank you for that. Jonathan knows exactly what I'm talking about. People who think finance has nothing to do with reality. And if enough people believe it, that is the reality. And it's destroying our economy. It's responsible for the inflation we've got now for any depression that's coming up. I could go on, but as you say, Leonard Peikoff's explains that given the objectivist theory of epistemology, there is no clash between our concepts, the words we use in order to understand things in the real world and the things in the real world. Right. You know, he starts out the whole thing with a, with a classic example. He, he was, you know, he had a, a very famous uh, uh, dissertation advisor at NYU when he was getting his PhD and he was having an argument with him once about coercive monopolies and the professor responded well you know it's true that uh, you know on the free market there can be no coercive monopolies but that's only true by definition by your definition of capitalism what get away from definitions and tautologies let's talk reality let's talk yeah. fact here uh, you know uh, in Ayn Rand's view a definition is not the meaning of a concept, but it is our means of distinguishing the reference of the concept from everything else. A definition is itself an empirical summary of knowledge. And it, it's not some arbitrary convention. For Ayn Rand, the fact that man is the rational animal, it's because, well, let's take a child. A child, she says, might have an early de running, working definition of, of human being, which may be, let's say, uh, the creature that work, walks on two legs and talks to me. Nothing else talks to me but humans, not animals, not trees, not rocks. So the thing that talks to me that walks around on two legs is human being. That's not going to be our best definition at the end of the day. But for a small child, that might be their working definition that helps keep humans separated in their mind from everything else. 
that helps keep humans separated in their mind from everything else. But then maybe he realizes that there's all kinds of other differences between humans. Humans write symphonies and operas and well, they do art in general. They play golf on the moon and they do science and technology in general. Those are also different. Humans have a sense of humor in a way that animals don't have. All of these things, including talking, which was part of his initial definition, themselves are caused by a deeper, more fundamental factor, rationality. And rationality explains all as more of these distinguishing characteristics than anything else we could say about man. Therefore, it is our best way of distinguishing the units. But through this process, notice, the child has not changed the things that he groups under the concept human or man. Same units, same reference, except he has a different definition, which better in a, in a far more subtle, sophisticated and powerful way, a way that integrates all of his factual knowledge and therefore is more useful. The definition, far from separating us from fact, actually connects us to fact. A definition is a human tool to keep a handle on the concept, but the concept means its reference. It does not mean merely its definition. And this is crucial. This is absolutely crucial. Um, uh, it, it is the source of rationalism among modern intellectuals, and it is seen in a thousand ways uh, in daily life and in politics and in ethics and all over the place. Uh, it really can't be avoided. You can't swing a dead cat, as they say, without running into this, this mental error uh, that happens all the time. If I were to, you know, it's like going back to the, the, the bachelor example. To say that a bachelor uh, would be married, well, that's a uh, self-contradiction because of the convention of the way we use, you know, bachelors are unmarried men. So therefore, you can't, you can't have a married bachelor. It's a contradiction in terms. Now, the idea of a bachelor being able to get to the moon by flapping his arms really fast, that's not, that's just a contingent truth. That's not logically necessary. That's just a factually contingent thing. So one is logically necessary and one is just factually true. So there's two kinds of truths, two kinds of methods of, of getting to things. Uh, it divorces the induction and deduction, as I say, <laughs> and paralyzes a mind like Leonard Peikoff's philosophy professor. <laughs> Right, because yeah. all arms mean are those things on the side of your body, and all flapping means is that motion kind of like what wings do, and all flying means is... And yes, if you isolate them to the definitions, that what's, that's what you get. You know, Dr. Peikoff gives the positive point in the middle of the essay. And if I could, I'll just read a couple paragraphs for people who haven't read the essay yet. And I think you've already done a pretty good job summing it up. But Leonard Peikoff writes, since a word is a symbol for a concept, it has no meaning apart from the content of the concept it symbolizes. And here's the point here. And since a concept is an integration of units. It has no content or meaning apart from its unit. I wonder what your philosophy professors would do with that. I'm sure they said to you, oh, that's not even the language we use to talk philosophy. I'm sure they didn't understand it at all. Right, right. The meaning of a concept consists of the unit, the existence, which it integrates, including all of the characteristics of those units. The idea that our concepts aren't dictionary definitions exclusive of reality or, or floating abstractions that have nothing to do with anything. 
or some deeper noumenal truth that somehow we attach to, but then loosely apply to the brute facts of reality. The idea that words, the words coming out of my mouth right now refer not to some floating idea I've got, but to the stuff out there. Right. Is inexplicable to these I facts. mean the entity. I don't mean some mental convention in my mind or our extracted essence from the thing. You know, the Peacock has a wonderful example on this one. You know, normally when a woman says, I married a wonderful man, we do not take her to mean in ordinary life, gee, I married a wonderful combination of rationality and animality. <laughs> <laughs> no, she means to include all the characteristics that humans can possess. He's kind, he's understanding, he's, you know, all these other things. He's considerate of me. He gives me visibility and appreciates me. There's all these other things that she's talking about. He's a good husband. He's a nice husband. You know, he's, he's considerate of my feelings. You know, yeah. she doesn't simply mean. Uh, so the difference between common parlance, where we use concepts to mean their entire, the entire meaning, uh, right, uh, uh, is so different from the way philosophers approach it. And it's sort of artificial. But once you've yes. had this training in philosophy, believe me, it becomes an, a mental disease mm -hmm. where you, you can so easily get onto the track of saying, well, that's just a tautology, true by definition, you know, uh, and it, let's talk fact, just like Peikoff's philosophy professor. Yes. Yeah. My, okay. So my understanding, I want to jump in here. My understanding of this article and the, the analytic synthetic dichotomy is uh, somebody saying to you, uh, you know, I know you know that what you know, and you think that I am a bearer of giving you knowledge and helping you out with your thinking. But here I am, I'm going to, uh, uh, under the pretense of trying to help you with your thinking, I'm going to basically give you uh, prison cells to put your concepts into. Now, you know, you don't want to integrate your concepts. You don't want to actually induce anything from reality. Forget about that. We're talking about what's real and I guess real in philosophy, I suppose. That's <laughs> what so, they get paid the big bucks for. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so, so here, here's what I want you to believe. Uh, I want you to believe that, uh, you know, instead of a, a spiral theory of knowledge, you know, one that would actually take into context, you know, open-ended concepts and learning new things about existence and, and such. No, no, no. I want you to I've got two prisons on the other on each opposite sides of the world, and I want you to put some concepts in there in individuated prison cells, and the other ones, the so the analytic and then the synthetic and the other individuated prison cells, uh, and don't integrate them, don't think, don't question, and uh, just you know, I, I get, I, I can't even imagine, I can't even, I can't even imagine the motivation of somebody who is thinking this way. Um, and I accept that they were perhaps brainwashed as a young person, and then they kind of carried on the disease, but, um, well, but even then on some level, there was that ability to refuse, you know, the, Ayn Rand wrote, there is no honest revolt against reason at some point yeah. they could have either questioned that or they kept their mouth shut and kept listening to their professors. Yeah. So, so, so my, my analogies to this is, uh, another analogy is, uh, it's, it's like, uh, so a couple of years, I know some years ago, there was a trend of people taking their books and taking a bookshelf and then they would rearrange their books by color. It's a joke you see on the internet and, it's, and it looks like a nightmare. It looks like. Yeah, but if all groupings are arbitrary, why, right. do you, 
why do you need your medical books over here, your your philosophy books over here, and your history books over here? Color will make your bookshelves look so yeah, much nicer. Color, <laughs> color is the analytic truth that that, uh, that, that we need right. to. You know, and that's a higher uh, truth, or at least a different truth. And different. yeah, I, I just, uh, it, it is absolutely bonkers what these people are thinking. Um, yeah. The so, definition <laughs> is not a condensation of empirical knowledge for them. A definition is simply a, conve a human convention for them. For yes. Kant, it's interesting because he was kind of preserving, in a way, the Platonic approach to universals, but instead of it being part of a world of forms, it's the way, it's the categories in which our mind must operate. And so he's translated, in effect, this world of essences out there into uh, the categories, in effect, that humans have to consider things, including time, space, logic, entity. You know, that's what the way people have to see things. It's not true of the world. <clears throat> Of course, people immediate philosophers immediately chucked Kant's uh, even idea of a real world, and so all they were left with is this internal human subjectivity. By sheer convention, we're defining things in certain ways, not because of their condensations of our ongoing. See, as you point out, spiral theory of knowledge is a constant reintegration of the sum of our knowledge, tying this new knowledge back into all of our knowledge in a systematic way. They don't look at definitions as an ongoing, improved, you know, thing that helps us isolate the concept. No, they look at it as the meaning of the concept. So that's all in our head. That's that's that has nothing to do with reality. The facts about it. We just look at, and those may could have been different because, after all, as we know from Descartes and the whole of modern philosophy, arbitrary possibilities. We've discussed this in the arbitrary in several lectures before. Uh, by admitting women to thought, as philosophers did, because they wanted, in the original thought was a religious one, wasn't it? God had all these other possibilities he could have made, right? He could have made the world in in different ways. Now maybe God couldn't have made one plus one equal five. But God surely could have done these other things. And so to keep these Leibnizian possible worlds out there, or even these Descartes arbitrary possibilities out there, they've got to consider arbitrary possibility. And if you don't have this idea of the arbitrary, you are going to be messed up here permanently. Promise. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Outstanding. Just real quick, let's go through the super chat. As I mentioned, Jonathan Honig was in right from the very beginning and very generously. Also, Fritz, I believe that's our uh, our former producer there. Very much uh, appreciate that as well. Ed is in for four forty nine, four pounds forty nine pence. I guess that is, and uh, very much appreciated. Jonathan in once again. So obviously, one of our uh, hardcore James Stevens Valiant fans, and Jeff Bannister is in the chat as well with a super chat. Thank you for that. Very much appreciated any of these super chats. You can add questions to them too. We have the philosopher, James Stevens Valiant. I know you all think of him as a great legal mind, but he is, as he said, magna cum laude in philosophy as well. You can put in your super chats, add a question to them. If it all goes to the Ayn Rand Center UK, you can also become a member by going to aynrandcenter.co.uk. Sign up for a membership. We're members. All the cool kids are doing it. It's what you should do too. <laughs> We are the hottest thing in objectivism, and uh, not if I do say so ourselves here. <laughs> it really is. But the truth is that you get a tremendous value out of subscribing to Ayn Rand Center UK. You know, I have kind of simplified the distinctions here so that uh, most people can get it. 
uh, you, there are specific differences in how these, you know, a posterior, a priori, meaning prior to experience, after experience. Do we need to have experience or can we just know this by definition? Necessary versus contingent. Well, there, there some people talk about different kinds of truths, different kinds of facts. Other people simply talk about different kinds of categories in our mind. But the truth is that uh, there are slight differences in each of these. And it's Kant who really gave us the terminology, analytic and synthetic. And in the regard to necessary and contingent, there is an important fact we have to bring up here. If you know human beings have to choose, it's a form of causation, it's not a contradiction to causation, but the fact that human beings have a capacity for choice means that future things are in a sense contingent in one way. Now, every fact of reality that exists and has already occurred is necessary. To be is to be necessary. Necessity explain, adds nothing to, to the concept of existence about anything. So to distinguish something necessary and contingent is bizarre. There is, in one sense, no such thing as a contingent truth. Well, any more than there is an a priori truth. All truth must come, begin, and arise from experience. But with regard to necessary and contingent, people do have this choice, this volition. And this opens up the idea that some things didn't have to be. But of course, as Ayn Rand explains in the metaphysical versus the man-made, humans can only their free will is not a power of magic. <laughs> we cannot create new potentials in objects and entities. They are what they are, and they only have the potentials that they have. And all we can do is rearrange the elements that exist in reality. That is the extent of it. We cannot violate the rules of existence. We cannot make some existent go out of, or any attribute of that existent go out of being. It is, and therefore is necessary. But leaving aside the idea that you know, human future decisions are contingent, leaving that aside because we have free will, in a sense, everything is necessary in every sense. But you know, the word contingent, it really isn't even a good exact way of describing things that could be our choice. Because our choices are limited by the facts of reality. Yes. Our choice will, once we've made our choice, it too has now become an absolute fact of reality that, that cannot be altered. Yes. <laughs> Volition is not magic. And so even in that sense, calling it contingent is misleading, as mm -hmm. Peacock points out. Yes. You know, I wonder if if this had been understood, well, of course, how many people understand it even now, but what would be left of so many of the great arguments in philosophy? What would be left of Aquinas and his arguments for God? The, the idea that uh, God must exist because God is the greatest thing that can exist. And a God that does exist must be greater than a God that doesn't exist. And therefore, the God that does exist, does exist. This is so obviously arguing from definitions disassociated from reality. That is such a classic example. Uh, you don't want to put the full blame on Aquinas here. This guy named St. Anselm was the first guy who said it like that. And he, you know, he said it the way he said it was just like that. Look. It, God, by definition, is the very best thing I can conceive of. Now, if I have two things that are identical and one exists and one doesn't exist, surely the existing thing is better than the thing that doesn't exist. So if God really does conform to the definition of being the very best thing that could possibly exist, yes. then God must exist. Totally disconnected from reality. Total deductive logic based on definitions 
definitions, by the way, that have no reference actually to reality, like, like you know, God or something. <laughs> but despite all that, despite his invalid concepts, despite his pure use of deduction, we learn zero from Anselm's argument because it makes no connection to reality, whatever, but it is a perfectly, what logicians would call a sound or valid deductive argument in one sense, because formally, you know, it's formally a good deduction. Deduction depends on induction. Yes. The general premise in any deduction is itself the product of induction. Induction. Are, <laughs> and and I want to point out, just another plug for uh, Ayn Rand Center UK, we are currently doing on Sundays uh, the Leonard Peikoff course, Induction in Physics and Philosophy, where Dr. Peikoff really takes this to the next level. Yes. and shows how Ayn Rand's theory of concepts really provides a solution to the problem of induction as applied to the way scientists and philosophers actually use it. So you say, what would happen to philosophy? Well, it would be the collapse of modern philosophy as we know it. The entire yes. tradition from Descartes, Spinoza, uh, you got to get rid of Hume, you got to get rid of, right? Kant is a monster. Hegel bases it all on it. Pragmatism is an emanation of it. And then you look at the 20th century. You, you know, you've got the, the great epistemologist, maybe, maybe the most famous epistemologist of the 20th century, a guy named Ludwig Wittgenstein, guy behind nominalism. Logical propositions tell us absolutely nothing. Or you've got the famous American philosopher, A.J. Ayers, right? He says it is all convention it is absolutely, words are not, don't in effect have to refer to reality at all. It's just our definitions over here. And then reality has, <laughs> may or may not have anything to do with it. So what it would mean if Leonard Peikoff's essay were understood, if Ayn Rand's revolution in concepts was understood, it would mean the complete destruction of modern and contemporary philosophy at its root. They would have to scrape off the chalkboard and start all over. There is no reason to separate out one kind of truth from another kind of truth, one kind of fact from another kind of fact, one kind of logic from another kind of logic. logic apart from fact, is useless. Facts cannot be understood without logic. It is only the marriage of logic and fact that gets us to truth. Any attempt by philosophers to divorce the two is destroying knowledge. The very possibility of knowledge adds it at its root, because that's how humans know. They integrate their facts by means of logic. You divorce those two artificially, creating two artificial realms, two artificial truths or facts or methods of knowing. Uh, you have completely destroyed the actual means by which humans know, the integration of fact by logic. You're here. Absolutely. The, uh, the example that springs to mind, you talk about the, the using these arbitrary definitions, take it out, out of religion and look at the nominalists. I remember Leonard Peikoff gave the example. He said, if, if you ignore the, the rooted basis of definitions and the facts of reality, then you can say uh, apples are razors, oranges are blades, and therefore you can shave with fruit salad. <laughs> that is a classic example. I remember that. That is a gem of an example. Right. The, uh, if our, the premises of a deduction aren't themselves rooted in fact, aren't themselves valid generalizations. That is to say, if induction can never be valid, well, then no deduction could ever be valid. 
And on the other hand, our it comes from theology. It really does come from theology. These people had discovered Aristotelian formal deductive logic, and they were going, you know, on steroids on it without any connection to fact. So in their minds, by the time we get to the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment is now trying to overcome, in effect, medieval philosophy, but it's still stuck with those premises, stuck in those religious premises of the medieval logicians. Mm. Well, some things are logically true. Some things just factually happen to be. Some things are logically necessary. Some things are merely contingent and could have been otherwise, whether it's God or an arbitrary convention or a social convention on the part of humans. And the this reality basis for this and the connection, again, some people will think of an introduction to objectivist epistemology, that's important for epistemology, but how does that really affect us now in the modern world? And I don't think there's any other way to explain the disdain for, for reason. I was going to say logic, but logic is the method of reason. For reason itself, for our grounding in the facts of reality, for our ability to know anything. It's, it's extraordinary to me because this essay to me is such a jaw dropper. The entire introduction to objectivist epistemology and again, her definition of concepts and her explanation of concept formation, her building on that of abstractions from abstractions and right to the level of concepts of consciousness is everything that was needed to save philosophy. But Leonard's analysis of that, what that has meant in the modern world and what philosophers still don't know, and we still have all of these dichotomies in this case between logic and experience and the necessary and the contingent, but that sounds floating. The, the dichotomy between street smarts and the ivory tower which for which there's no other way to explain modern politics modern pragmatism of modern politics how do you explain pragmatism by this but by, by this bizarre dichotomy this bizarre severing right uh well just do what works well how do we know what works mr pragmatist well it's on a case-by-case -case basis previous knowledge really can't help us here go in effect what it goes by according to most pragmatists is your feelings or by social convention. And so but what can explain a political debate in which you say, well, this would be wrong, this would be immoral, this is against our long-term interests, but someone comes back, oh, that's just your lot. Now get practical, roll yeah. up your sleeves and, and negotiate and compromise and set aside those principles. You know, we were discussing an essay by Leonard Peikoff where he talked about George Bush, yes. uh, first George Bush during the uh, first Iraq war back back in the early 19, around 90, was it 89, 90, 91? Uh, he said, well, of course, um, with that and with respect to the tax cut, too, why did I, I said no new taxes, read my lips. On both of those instances, you have to say to yourself, what is he doing? He said it out loud. I had to put the welfare of the American people over my principles. Boom. That is the dichotomy here in operation. You've got a president of the United States who's got principles that apparently are connected to the welfare of the American people. His political principles have nothing to do with actual outcomes, but they're by principles and I've got them over here. They may have nothing to do with reality, but so I'm gonna sacrifice those to because in pragmatically in this particular context, unique context, I have to do this, which denies my principles. How do you explain pragmatism? Or on the other hand, how do you explain, uh, the intellectual other end of things is, things is, how do you explain modern physics? How do you explain these bizarre interpretations of quantum mechanics? 
where, you know, where there's, you know, flat contradictions and violations uh, of reality. Well, logic is merely a human convention. Just because it seems to you to involve a bizarre paradox doesn't mean that isn't true of the contingent world out here, which we have to go observe, which may involve all sorts of contradictions and non-causal things. How else do you explain phenomena like that, but as the emanations of this divorce between logic and fact that philosophy has perpetrated uh, on human thought? Well, those facts are merely contingent, you know. What, right. We can't use our principles because those those aren't related to the contingent facts out there. Those are our private realm of logic. It, it's extraordinary that that mind-body split, that reason-practicality uh, split, principles-practicality, the roots in epistemology explain it all, but it's jaw-dropping to know that, again, you were in college-level philosophy courses, and your professors were saying things which this essay should have answered for them once and for all. Right. And none of them, as I say, had a real answer for Ayn Rand's position on concept or Leonard Peikoff's position on these dichotomies. What would they, yeah, what would they have said about, um, I'm thinking of the primacy of existence versus primacy of consciousness. Oh, wow. Uh, now, what, I mean, I, would they have even been able to, what, what kind of mangling would they have done to those concepts? And that's because it just... <laughs> the primacy, if I ever articulated the primacy of existence, I would be called a dogmatist. Uh, yes. I would be called an absolute dogmatist. I would say, well, isn't the fact of existence just as obvious as the fact of consciousness? And well, what are you talking about? Doesn't it involve a contradiction just as much as denial of yeah. the fact? Of Where are your intuitions of the world out there coming from? No, no, no. It was told to me every time we have to infer the existence of reality. We have to infer existence as such. We have to infer uh, that there is something apart from consciousness. Well, then what does consciousness mean? And how could I understand? How could I have formed the idea of con? I don't know what I in fact, I would do things like this. I don't even understand the concept of consciousness. It sounds to me like just a noise. Ish to triddly bloop or something. Tell me what what is consciousness if I don't have the concept existence, at least an implicit concept of existence. They had a, no answer. They would just say, oh, Jim, you're playing word games or something. When I'm saying, no, I'm pointing to reality. Um, and, and you yourself admit that in a way, and I could get them to sort of admit that it was a foundation for other things that they knew. But at the end of the day, well, no, but that's what we're really trying to decide here is the status of our knowledge. And you've just declared that there was, that there just happens to be this existence out there, Mr. Valiant. So <laughs> they didn't accept existence as uh, self-evident uh you know uh proposition as a self-evident axiom at all mm -hmm. a self uh, a perceptual self-evidency mm -hmm. that idea was totally unknown to them you've got perception which can be totally deceptive and clouded over here and things could change tomorrow for all we know the uh, hume even would say it like this for all we know the sun might not rise tomorrow now in hume's time they actually knew the solar system they had Kepler's laws. They had Newton's uh, laws of gravity. They had absolute reason to know why the sun, the earth is turning on its own axis. The earth is going around the sun in an ellipse. They knew the causal reasons why the sun would rise the next morning. And yet Hume could still say, oh, well, those are just continuing. You know, you know, that's just fact. For all we know, the sun might not rise tomorrow. Wow. And that is, like I say, these dichotomies are an 
are treated by modern philosophers as an axiom. You go into a philosophy class and you say, well, I don't buy it. I don't, I reject, all knowledge is a posteriori, even logic and mathematics, right? All facts are necessary. To be is to be necessary. That's that. Analytic, synthetic? No. Definitions, you know, you might think of that. They it, it, go like in one ear, out the other. They couldn't even formulate it in, in their heads as an answer. I, I had one professor, I must give him credit, who said, I see how you are outlining an answer to all this, but it violates everything that every philosopher of the last 400, 500 years has said. <laughs> so I, I can't go with you there. Uh, based on the sheer authority of Descartes to Wittgenstein. That's right. Who are you? Who are you to question all of that? I could lose my job over this. It's, uh, it's interesting, too, because I not only see this in the extent of pragmatism in the modern world, but even among, I was going to say the better, better thinkers, but I'm not even sure I would call them the better thinkers. There are really smart people out there who are trying to navigate these waters, but they're using the same old premises. When I look at groups like the less wrong community, if you've heard of them, uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky and Julia Galef, and really, really smart people, or, or um, Slate Star Codex, uh, just really, really smart, but who start with all these same premises and make all of the same artificial splits and the one thing that they agree on more than anything else is that nothing is 100% true. There's no such thing as a probability of one. It's always fractional or 100%. You know, if we don't have something with a probability of one, how do we calculate the probability of anything else? If everything truly is a probability on a probability on a probability on a probability, you know, our probabilities stretch and get attenuated in their yes. capacity. And if everything's a probability of everything else, then nothing can ever really be known. It's turtles all the way down. Turtles it's amazing all the way down. These are really smart people, much smarter right. than I am. But they, it's, it's for the proof that ideas are, this is a war of ideas. It is in a my, battle of ideas. In my experience, you guys are at least as smart as most of these guys. <laughs> well, well, we sometimes say smarter things than they do because we're starting oh, from a better place. Please, they way smarter things than they always do. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it, what it is, is a kind of trained mental disease. And the more educated in uh, philosophy or in scientific methodology you are, the more prone you are to being a victim of this. But as we've observed, it trickles its way down into every aspect of our life. You know, people will say, oh, that's just a tautology or that's just true by definition. And what can motivate those kind of attitudes? Um, it can only be this radical split that's been trained into their mind and automatized in their mind so that it's a sort of psychoepistemological disease that they carry around with them. And we don't have a better concept a better understanding of concepts, Ayn Rand's theory of concepts, we will forever be lost in this confusion. I, I'm just just to, a historical confusion, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to recall if there's anything in in uh, psychology where that has trickled down into psychology. I don't. I mean, uh, I mean, other. I mean, Freud is passe. Primal scream therapy that's gone. But I mean, in terms of uh, you know the psychology of today, uh, kind of behavioral therapy and such. I'm hoping that that hasn't infiltrated that kind of realm, but because that would be a disaster. <laughs> um, but I'm just trying, I'm just wondering, do you know? 
Well, I think that the cognitive behavioral movement in psychology has been a very positive one because it actually does reverse uh, one of the most important dichotomies, the severing of theory and practice, right? It indicates the real importance of ideas and thinking in our psychology, our motivations, our actions, the real world impact of ideas that that implies uh, is a very positive one. I'm not sure it completely solves the this logical issue because I think people can still walk walk around with this problem in their heads. <laughs> I think a good uh, cognitive psychologist, though, will get people grounded in fact and have to use logic along the way in some kind of combination. Uh, so I think that is good. Now, on the other hand, we do not live in a world where that's all there is is cognitive. <laughs> theorists or, or clinicians, we live in a world in which we actually still have psychologists saying, well, no, some self-deception is a good thing, you know, uh, some divorcement, so long as you're not a psychotic that they're going to put away in a local mental hospital, you know, as you're not babbling on the street like a homeless person, <laughs> then, we, you know, having an exaggerated sense of self or having an unrealistic view of reality, you know, over-optimistic view of things is a good thing. It keeps you keeps you uh, healthy, even though it's totally unrealistic and has nothing to do with reality. Here is a separation between reality and our concepts. And here you can really see that distinction between, oh, what we think over here may make us feel good, but it has nothing to do with reality. And there are psychologists who still promote this kind of distinction, which is itself, I believe, an emanation of this deeper philosophical distinction. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy, for all of your wonderful knowledge. Oh, my goodness. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so, so I love Leonard Peikoff's statement on the unity of, of, the, uh, of thinking. He writes, it follows that there are no grounds on which to distinguish analytic from synthetic propositions. Whether one states that a man is a rational animal or that a man only has two eyes, in both cases, the predicated characteristics are true of man and are therefore included in the concept man. The meaning of the first statement is a certain type of entity, including all of its characteristics, among which are rationality and animality, is a rational animal. But the meaning of the second is a certain type of entity, including all of its characteristics, among which is the possession of only two eyes, has only two eyes. Each of these statements is an instance of the law of identity. Each is a tautology. To deny either is to contradict the meaning of the concept man. This, this unity of the concept, which, which is the objectivist response, yeah, the concept is the existence, not the def The definition is important, but the concept is the existence in the real world. And that separation was always artificial. Right. Now, you see, you know, some tables can be made out of plastic. Some tables can be made out of wood. Some tables can be made out of stone. One could say, well, gee, isn't the material with which this particular table versus that particular table is made is a contingent fact. In, we go back to the human choice there that we could make the choice. Right. But it's more than that. Even the characteristics upon which tables differ are included. Tables must be made of a solid substance. 
Some are made of wood, some are made of stone, some are made of plastic, okay? The, 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 we haven't lost any of those characteristics, even for the thing, the, the, in the ways they differ. Uh, Robert is a handsome man. Jim is, you know, not such a handsome guy. And so, but despite those differences, we're both still men. Guess what? When we use the concept man, we include men who can be really good looking versus men who aren't so good looking. And that is the range upon which men all those characteristics. Do all men have some kind of looks? Yes, they have some kind of looks, and that's included. Are all tables made out of some kind of material? Yes, and that's all included. Even the different characteristics are not contingent or just happen to be. A fact that is, is necessary. And even though we've collected all this information into this uh, objectively condensed definition, this objectively condensed, based on all the facts we know about it, this objectively condensed statement of essence about it, we have made this statement about it, but it still includes all the non-essential qualities, even the differing qualities. I, it, When I talk about table or man, I'm talking about tables and men I've never seen from the past. I'm talking about tables and chairs I will never see in the future. I'm talking about all the tables and chairs in China that I've never seen. <clears throat> um, that we, we transcend to the universal at that point, right? We render, and if we buy this dichotomy though, you see, what we've done is we've turned tautology into something empty. When I reach a point in effect of being tautology, well, that's because that's the thing, the way the thing is, I've actually reached a point where I've summarized my knowledge. So in a sense, I mean, both, I reject both concepts the way they're used. In a sense, when we get to a truth, it's going to be stated tautologically, right? In another right. sense, all facts, even the definitional facts, are just contingent in one sense. They just happen to be factual things. So, but both are misleading concepts. All facts are necessary, in effect, and no fact is merely just uh, an empty statement of uh, an empty statement, right? Even when we get to the point of saying. A is A. Yes, which is why a future discussion, hopefully soon, needs to be on the objectivist understanding of context. But I hope from this discussion that folks can see why, context. at least for me, people say, well, you know, what was your objectivism story? And I tell them how I discovered Ayn Rand. And, but then they'll often say, well, when, when did you decide you were an objectivist? I would say reading this essay is when I realized that I am an objectivist. And if you haven't read it yet or haven't read it in a long time and you found this discussion compelling, I hope you will crack open your copy of Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology and give it a look. The analytic synthetic dichotomy is like all of Leonard's writing. It is rich and it is important. So we need to wrap up and we really appreciate you all being here with us and all the wonderful super chats and the support for Ayn Rand Center UK. I'm going to leave with just one uh, quote from Ayn Rand, which I really have found just delightful in this article. It is crucially important to grasp the fact that a concept is an open-end classification, which includes the yet-to-be-discovered characteristics of a given group of existence. All of man's knowledge rests on that fact. And I'll go even further. I'll say that reason is efficacious, and reason will, will bring you what is real, what, what the truth of what's real in reality to the benefit of your life, your flourishing, your survival. So cheers to Ayn Rand. <laughs> cheers to Ayn Rand. This essay, go read it, people. It could change your life like it did Robert's and mine, and probably Amy's. Yes, and help me. 
understanding has the potential to change human history. It is a revolution in human thought that will throw out the window basically most of modern philosophy as a whole. Just this one essay. Just this one essay is a revolution in human thought and basically the takedown of modern philosophy for the last 500 years. <laughs> it's that big a deal. So if you do find this content uh, valuable or interesting, please do consider uh, becoming a paid regular subscriber. As I say, we're doing essay, we're doing seminars on workshops every Sunday on a Leonard Peikoff course very relevant to this, Induction in Physics and Philosophy, which is one of the perks that only subscribers get. Uh, but if you, you like know, between, this, between like, the share. work that you do on the weekends and the work that Don Watkins shares with members only, it's it's worth many times the cost of membership. Well, the famous level of membership, but you can get in for as little as five ninety nine pounds a month. And and again, James, your work is extraordinary. Your understanding of these ideas is extraordinary. And thank uh, you. And Don Watkins' work. If you've read his essays, if you're a member of his Substack, you know what kind of a thinker he is. But the work that he does in the communication boot camps, invaluable. So, yes, definitely sign up. You'll see the link in the chat there if you're not already a member. And if you are, you're, you're one of the gang. Thank you for that. But, James, thank, thank you for this discussion. Outstanding, oh, invaluable. And we're so much looking forward to the next one. Thank you. Take care.